Well, amen, and good morning once again. This, uh, this Sunday, we are between sermon series. Uh, we were in the Psalms for the summer, and we're going to be transitioning to a new book. I'm about 98% sure it's going to be the book of Hebrews, as we consider the fact that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than Melchizedek. He is better. And I'm, I'm thinking that's where we're going to land starting next Sunday. It's, we, it's something we need to be reminded of, church, that of all the other things that the world would tell us is better than Jesus, that Jesus is better. So today, what we're going to do, since we've just ordained some deacons, is we're going to be reminded about the role of a deacon from God's Word. So we're going to be reminded of the role of a deacon from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Would you hear now the Word of God? Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well, as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you, God, for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, God, for the men that you've set apart this morning for service as deacons. And we pray, God, that uh, we would be reminded of, of why it is you've set deacons apart and that the whole church would be edified thereby. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So immediately before this text, if you remember 1 Timothy, it's, it's part of the letters that since the 1700s Bible scholars have called the pastoral epistles, sort of letters on instructions to pastors as they're thinking about the structure of church life in building the church in such a way that it's able to withstand attack from outside and from within inside. And so immediately before this text, Paul gives us instructions on those who serve as pastors or as elders or as overseers. It's important to note that in the Bible, those three words, elder, pastor, and overseer, are three different aspects of the one office of pastor or bishop or elder, whatever you want to call it. All right. It's only later down the line in church history that those things got split out and made into different things. The, the pastor is the elder, is the overseer. The pastor, bishop, elder, they're all one office. And in the New Testament church, there's more than one of them. There, there are several of them that sort of like a team provide oversight and leadership in the life of a church. So David Platt says this, and the, the reason that's important is the role of overseer is spelled out in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter. And then David Platt says this, The Bible identifies two primary leadership roles in the church. The first is the, the pastor-elder overseer, who are the servant 
leaders, and then there are deacons who are the leading servants. As, as a quick summary of what God's Word says about pastors, they are taken together responsible for caring for the flock, protecting the flock, feeding the flock by preaching the Word, knowing the Word of God extensively, communicating the Word of God effectively, leading the flock humbly by applying the theological implications of God's Word to the overall life of the church as they model the character of Christ. When it comes to deacons, while their role is different, they support the pastors who are able to teach, verse 2 of this chapter, and who humbly lead well, chapter 5, verse 17. Their character qualifications, while their role is different, their character is very similar to that of a pastor. In fact, some of the exact same words occur in these verses that we saw in verses 1 through 7, if we had read them. And so this morning, before we dive into the character qualifications of a deacon, I want to remind us, I want to take a step back to Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to remind you of the situation so that we can learn and be reminded a little bit about what is it that a deacon does. First, by the way, the word deacon, right there in verse 8, deacons likewise. The word deacon or deacons simply means those who serve. It literally means table waiter, one who waits on tables, a minister. So in Acts chapter 6, the church is 5,000 members and growing strong, and there's an increasing mix of ethnic backgrounds. You've got Hebrew Jews, and then you've got Hellenistic Jews, both of whom who have come to saving faith in Christ, and there's a little squabble that's emerging over the distribution of aid in the church. The apostles can't keep up with everything that's going on, and so these deacons are set apart, seven men are set apart to lead the service ministry of the church so that the church can remain united, the pastors can, can, can continue to pray and to preach, and the gospel will continue to go forth. So a few observations from that story in Acts chapter 6. First, deacons are set apart for service so that pastors can stay focused on their primary responsibilities. Praying and preaching, praying and preaching, praying and preaching. Guiding God's church in God's word. Mentoring the next generation of young men. Entrust these things to faithful men, Paul says. Entrusting the faith to the next generation of pastors. Secondly, deacon ministry can change over time as the needs and opportunities in the church change, we have a tendency to make the first thing we do the only thing we'll do, right? It's, we, we can ossify as an organization. We can, we can become really hardened and not be flexible, but the whole emergence of deacon ministry came out of a particular need. Hey, there's a need. The apostles don't have time to handle that need. We need some deacons to lead the servants, and which, which means in the life of our church, it's 2019 now, it's going to be 2029 in a New York minute. The things that our deacons may need to do for our church to be effective might be tweaked or changed somewhat over time. Notice they, what the church did not do in this situation is organize a church aid distribution committee. They didn't get a nominating committee to get another committee. They just said, hey, who is God raising up that can coordinate this? 
Ah, they seven guys. They're deacons. Hey, you run with it. There's no way that seven men can coordinate the distribution of aid for five thousand people. But you are the servants that the apostles are going to talk to, and you're going to figure it out. And it's going to be great for the glory of God. Which brings us to another observation: deacons are not the only servants in the church. You don't have to wait for the pastor to say, "Hey, you were nominated as a deacon to serve." If our deacon comes to you and says, hey, we've got a need and you're a faithful brother or sister in Christ, we would love it if you would join arms with us in meeting this need, then don't be like, well, I'm not a deacon. Of course you're a deacon. You're a Christian. And anybody who's a Christian is called to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Deacons are simply a way of organizing the service in the life of the church. So you don't have to, be wait, you don't have to wait to be ordained to be a deacon or to serve, rather. So if we're to put this in 2019 terminology, what would the deacons have been responsible for in, in Jerusalem if Jerusalem could come to Roanoke for a minute? They, they would be responsible for things like greeting, benevolence, care for the sick, care for widows, building maintenance, security, and similar tasks. Those sorts of things were entrusted to a body of men who then involved the whole church in making sure that those things were accomplished. And finally, the deacons are appointed to keep the body of Christ unified around the word of Christ so that the church is not sidelined as she pursues the Great Commission. The Great Commission requires the preaching of the gospel. It requires the church to remain faithful and holy and pure, and that's the work of the pastors. So as the deacons bring unity and healing by meeting a need, the Great Commission continues and people continue to be saved in the city of Jerusalem. In other words, setting apart deacons is it's very important. It's vital to the life of the church. First Timothy is written against the backdrop of emerging heresy in the Ephesian church. And what Paul is showing us is that if we appoint men who will keep us focused on the gospel and displaying the glory of Christ, as we select Christ-like examples of, of character and gospel commitment, that we can stay moving forward in the life of the church. In other words, you could say it this way, the most important service of a deacon is that of serving as a godly example. It's, I'm so thankful we had a, a new sound booth slash projection booth built in a week's time. It's incredible. You see it back there. We got a little bit of finishing touches yet to go. But the amount of work that was done in a week back there is amazing. And, and a number of our deacons were on that project. I'm thankful for their technical skill and expertise and everything else. But more than that, I'm thankful for their godly character. And that's what Timothy is called to emphasize in the selection of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see four things in these eight verses. To remain united in the gospel and display Christ's glory in the church, deacons must be controlled by the Spirit. They must be convinced of the gospel. They must have a confirmed Christ-like character. They must lead a Christ-honoring home. And they must serve for the right reward. Five things, not four things, five things that we see in this text. First, deacons must be controlled by the Spirit. The word likewise in verse 8 means in like manner. In other words, just as the pastors have qualifications for their character, so too do the deacons have qualifications for their character. While Paul 
does not specifically mention the Holy Spirit in verse 8. Everything that he says implies that the deacon must be self-controlled. He's got to be a man of dignity. Do you see that in verse 8? Dignity means a man who's honorable, who's got his body and his mind and his heart under control. And we know from Galatians 5.23 that the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. Specifically, the deacon must have control in three areas that are mentioned in verse 8. He's got to have control of his tongue, control of his mind, and control of his desires. To be double-tongued means to speak deceitfully. Deacons are the leading unifiers of the church. Somebody's yip, 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 and they don't take that and then go to somebody else and spread it. They go to the pastor. They say, hey, why don't we go talk to the pastors about that? They, they kill gossip and deceit in the life of the church before it ever has an opportunity to spread. They are not double-tongued. They don't use their position to deceive or divide, but to speak truth in love and to keep pe- pointing people to the gospel purpose of their service. Secondly, he can't be addicted or given to much wine. The word addicted means to give one's mind to something. Here's a simple test to know if you're addicted to wine or alcohol or beer. If Jesus Christ himself stood before you and said, for the sake of your family or your Christian brother or your wife or your kids or your witness in the world, I'm asking you to never have another drop of alcohol again. If Jesus did that, not your pastor, but if Jesus showed up in your bedroom tonight and asked you that question, Could your answer be, would your answer be, absolutely, you gave your life for me, whatever you ask, I can do it. If your answer to that cannot be a decisive yes, then alcohol has a control in your life that it should not have. That's how I answer that question. So, a deacon's, and and by the way, it's not just alcohol, right? That's the one that that Paul uses here, but nothing, there there should be no appetite in the deacon's life other than the appetite for Christ, which is so strong that it controls him. Your appetite for Jesus should be so strong that no other appetite has control in your life. Period. Finally, deacons must be free, excuse me, not fond of sordid gain. That's that's essentially the same thing that is said of pastors in verse 2, that they must be free from the love of money. They can't be greedy. Now, this doesn't mean that deacons can't have a good job or that they can't make a lot of money. Jesus's ministry was supported by wealthy women. Lydia had a home that was large enough to host the first church at Philippi. Paul is not saying that deacons have to be poor, rather that they must be poor in spirit. They've got to have a posture of dependency upon God. Money does not control them. Instead, the priority of the gospel controls their money. A deacon is spirit-filled. His mind, his mouth, and his desires, even how he spends his money, they are all guided by a desire to glorify Christ. Secondly, deacons must be convinced of the gospel. When someone is walking in faithfulness, with Christ and in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he does not waver in his commitment to the mystery of the faith. Do you see that in verse 9? And what a marvelous mystery the faith is. God sent his son into the muck and the mire of our sin-tattered lives to rescue us. He came down 
for us. And that's the life of a deacon. To come down, to condescend, to go down in service so that the church may be lifted up and glorify Christ all the more. A deacon doesn't accept the role to be popular. He doesn't accept it as a promotion. He accepts it because he's overwhelmed by the grace of God. We are looking for men in whom the agenda of self-promotion is crucified because Christ was crucified for them. Notice Paul says deacons must be holding to the mystery of the faith. The word holding there means to keep on holding on to something. Holding and never letting go. The faith is something so precious and so cherished that the deacon will never, ever, ever let it go. The reason that money and fame and status and gain do not have a hold on the heart of a deacon is because the deacon has discovered the unbelievable joy of having the gospel take hold of his life. You can take many things away from the deacon, but when it comes to the gospel, he will never let it go. I've heard some friends of mine in the gun control debate say you can have my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hand. Are y'all here this morning? That makes me laugh. I get get it. I get the point. But what the deacon would say of the gospel is, you can have the gospel for me. Oh, you can't because it has so warmed my heart. It has made me alive that even in death I know I have life. You can never rip the gospel away from me as my ambition and my driving force. My service in the church is all about the promotion of the gospel and the glory of Christ. You can never take it from me. I won't let the gospel go. He holds on to the faith. He doesn't hold on to a feeling. He doesn't hold on to a favorite pastor or a favorite teacher or a favorite podcast or a favorite uh, way of sitting in the sanctuary. He holds on to the gospel, the mystery of the faith, the unchanging, once for all delivered to the saints' faith, Jude verse 3. And he does it with a clear conscience. The word clear there literally means clean or cleansed. He's been given a whole new way of seeing things. He sees clearly because Christ has changed him in his inner man. And because Christ has made him clean, he's got one agenda, the faith. And by his attitude, his example, and his service, and his helping of the church to preserve and protect and defend and model and promote the, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as he does those things, he is satisfied finally or excuse me thirdly deacons must have a confirmed christ-like character in verse six paul says that pastors must not be new converts in verse 10 paul tells us that they need to be tested or proven that deacons must be tested or proven this is important an alcoholic who comes to saving faith in christ might be a great deacon one day But it would be irresponsible of the church to say, well, that's great. You just trusted Christ. And three months later to say, hey, we want you to be a deacon. It would be irresponsible of the church to saddle him with that new responsibility prematurely. The church is responsible for testing those who serve as deacons. And a test, or the test rather, is based upon the qualifications that Paul outlines in these verses. The man's character. The question is not, 
whether they have a really good job or a really great personality or a really great way with people. The question is this. Do you see it in verse 10? Is he beyond reproach? Now, let's be clear. Beyond reproach does not mean perfect because the only way you can come to Christ is by recognizing that you're far from perfect. So what does it mean? It means responding to our imperfections and our sins in the way that Christ has commanded us. It means that if they've failed someone in or outside of the church, that they have worked to be right with that person to the best of their ability. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, it's important to note that all Christians, not just deacons, most of what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we should want to see in the life of all believers. Paul's point is not that the church just needs a few guys to do all the work and that nobody else matters. The reason that we identify a few men is because everyone else matters so much. They need someone to lead the effort. We all need real, on-the-ground, living examples who will guide us in service and gospel faithfulness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, look, look at my life as an example. And then he says, look at the others around you as examples. We need men who are willing to stand up and be living examples of mature believers in service. And as that happens, the church will over time organically become more and more like Christ. So Paul says, if prospective deacons have been tested, they've been proven by the church, and they are beyond reproach, then let them serve. Chris, Jimmy, Don, welcome aboard. May you serve and serve well. Now, it's interesting that Paul, it seems like he could have been done. I mean, you got to be beyond reproach. What more is there to say? And then he immediately moves into the home life of the deacon. Because it's one thing to answer some questions in front of a congregation. It's another thing to go home and to live this out in your home. And what Paul is saying is that blamelessness begins at home. Deacons must lead a Christ-honoring home. Verse 11 reveals to us that the character of both men and women matter greatly in the life of the church. When we consider men for service as deacons, we must also consider their wives. Is their wife a believer? Is she supportive of her husband's pursuit of this role? Does she support her husband in the gospel? Deacons, if they are married, need to have a wife who is a devoted partner, helper, and companion in service. And do you see that in verse 11? One who is not a malicious gossip. You know what the word for malicious gossip is there? It's translated other places in the New Testament, devil. In other words, you can rest assured that where there is gossip, the devil is at work. The wives of deacons and of pastors, I believe, would be the implication of this text, are women who lead women in service. They are those who must refuse to hear or to spread gossip. To honor Christ, women must crucify their need to be in the know or to have the scoop or the skinny or the story. Along these same lines, the wife of a deacon needs to be temperate. The word temperate means sober, level-headed, not prone to extremes. I have a preteen daughter in my house, and I love her very much. But did you know she can sometimes be prone to extremes? 
really happy, really sad, sober, level-headed, down the middle. In verse 12, Paul returns to deacons who, if they are married, must literally be a man of one woman. The, the Greek literally says a man of one woman. And I want to take a little bit of time on what this says and what your pastor believes that this means. I do not believe that Paul is saying that if a man has been married and then his wife has died and then he's been remarried, that he cannot serve as a deacon because he's had two wives in his lifetime. I don't think that that's what is being said here. And the reason that I don't think that's what is being said is because later in 1 Timothy 5.9, we learn that widows who qualify to be supported by the church must be the wife of one man. Now, obviously, she's not literally the wife of one man because her husband has died and she is therefore a widow. And then further in verse 14 of that same chapter, younger widows are encouraged to get married again. If you're still young and of childbearing age, Paul says get married and have children. So if that were to happen in the life of a widow, she would be widowed at say 25 and then she got remarried because that's what the Bible told her to do. And she got remarried and had children, but then tragically her children died before she did. And she's now 65 years old and has no support, no children in life, but she's been married twice. Would we then say that she was not a woman of one man and therefore she's disqualified from the support of the church? Of course we would not. So what does that mean? It means that the phrase in Greek, man of one woman and woman of one man, that they are phrases that have a, a meaning, and this is the meaning, faithfulness in marriage. What it means is we would say of this man that he's a one-woman kind of man. He's a faithful guy to his wife. And this has vast implications for a question that many men have asked me at North Roanoke Baptist Church. Well, I was, I was married previously, Pastor, and it says i got to be a man of one woman, and I just think that means I can't serve. Now, there are some Bible scholars who think that that's what that means, but I simply disagree. If the phrase means a man of one if a man of one woman means faithful in marriage, then, as Kostenberger writes, I believe divorced and remarried men are not automatically excluded from being deacons, especially if their divorce occurred on biblical grounds. Then Kostenberger adds this, if the divorce was in the distant past, especially if the man was not a believer before, and if the man's present pattern and proven track record is one of marriage faithfulness, then he is not automatically excluded from being a deacon. Are y'all tracking with me? So if the phrase means a one-woman kind of man who is faithful in marriage and he was divorced 30 years ago, and he's repented of whatever his part in that was, and he's asked the forgiveness of his ex-spouse, and now Christ has radically saved him and changed his life, then it doesn't mean that he could never serve as a deacon. Are we, are we all on the same page? Okay. Now, there are people who disagree with me, but I think they're wrong. So there you go. The deacon, however, must be a one-woman kind of man. Faithful to his bride. 
Let's, let's not mistake this. This is still a very high standard. He, he, he can't be addicted to pornography. He's got to be faithful to his bride with his eyes, with his actions, with his affections. It doesn't, doesn't mean nothing. It's still a very, very high standard that we expect from the men who would serve as deacons of our church that, that people would say, that's a faithful brother. He loves his wife. He cherishes his wife. He washes her in the word as we're admonished to do in Ephesians 5. And he's not just faithful to his wife. He's faithful in his whole household. He's a good manager of his household. The word household is a comprehensive term that means the sum of a deacon's home life should be a model for others to follow. He should lead his children to be heavily invested in the life of the church. His finances should be in order. He should be consistently implementing the wisdom of God in his home life so that he can be free to serve Christ by leading others in service to Christ. You say, Daniel, what does all that mean? He shouldn't have unruly, crazy children. He shouldn't have, his life should not be a financial disaster. These things should not be in the life of a, a deacon. But at the end of the day, I, if I, I had a deacon brother a few years ago say to me, well, what are you looking for in a deacon? He had read our Constitution. He had read the Bible. He had prayed over and he goes, I'm still not sure that I'm supposed to be a deacon. And I said, brother, here's the question I would ask you. If Stacy and I tragically pulled out of the church tomorrow and got T-boned and my two children had to go live with you until they were of age, would they get the same thing they've been getting? Would they get the Word of God? Would they get substitute parents who prayed that they would be raised up to be little champions for Jesus? Would they be in church every time the doors opened? Would they know that you love Jesus with all your heart, more than money, more than fame, more than career, more than education. If Daniel and Stacy can't raise their kids and their kids have to go into your home, will they get the gospel? And if they'll see the power of the gospel to motivate and animate your home, then please come join us in service as a deacon at North Roanoke Baptist Church. Finally, why should deacons serve this way? They need to serve for the right reward. The reason we serve Jesus is because we love him. We treasure him. He is our all. But the scriptures also speak of the rewards of faithfulness in service. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and get this, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The deacon who serves well who serves wholeheartedly and with the right motives, will gain the reward, Paul tells us, of a good standing in the body and great confidence or boldness in faith. The word confidence there in verse 13 is the same word that we read over in Hebrews chapter 10, 19, which says, because Christ was crucified, a way has been made for us to enter into the holy place of God and to come boldly. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. We can come boldly into the presence of God. And the deacon who serves well has boldness and confidence in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Being called to serve as a deacon 
just like being called to be a Christian, is not the end, Chris and Don and Jimmy. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of a great pilgrimage that ends at the feet of our Savior. And as you serve out of gratitude for what Christ has done for you, as you serve because you delight to see other people get it and to catch fire for Jesus, as you serve with the right motives, you will end up knowing Christ more deeply than you ever have. You will end up having faith on top of faith. I get the the picture of a giant snowball rolling down a hill. You know, there's three kinds of snow. There's Snow that's too wet to make a snowball. There's snow that's too dry to make a snowball. And then there's this beautiful, wonderful snowball snow. And if you go to the top of a hill and it starts as just a little clump, but very soon as you start to roll it down the hill, it just accumulates more snow and it packs on. And the bigger that it gets, the faster that it rolls. That's kind of the picture of what's happening in the life of a deacon who's serving out of gratitude for Jesus and love for his church. Just the more that I serve, the more, I, the more excited I am, the, the deeper my faith goes, the more I see God impacting lives, the sweeter he is to me. And then one day when he breaks the eastern sky or he calls you home and you see him face to face, your capacity to know him and enjoy him and glorify him is going to be hugely expanded through your service to King Jesus. By the way, this principle isn't true just for a deacon. It's true for all Christians. And some here this morning, whether you hold the office of deacon or not, you needed to be reminded that Jesus is the reward. And if Jesus is the reward, there is nothing sweeter than serving him and seeing his church thrive for the glory of Christ. So this morning, the invitation is going to be threefold. First, For the deacons who are in this room, active or inactive, you may want to come and and pray for your service in the church. Maybe you've been reminded from the scriptures this morning of something and you just want to come afresh to Christ and say, "God, God, heal me, lead me, motivate me to be consumed with a passion for your glory. Secondly, you might be a church member and you might want to come and pray for our deacons. Say, God, bless them in their service this year. Thank you for their willingness to serve. And finally, you may not know Christ at all. And maybe today is the day that you would give your life to him and that you would stop trying to work for rewards that disappoint and instead give your life to Christ who is the most amazing reward you could ever know. Whatever your need this morning, I'm going to pray and then we'll sing and we invite you to come. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. You don't just sanctify us individually. You set us apart as a church. You make us more and more your people as we hear your word. God, I pray that you've been pleased in the preaching of it, and I pray that your church has been edified in the hearing of it. Lord, lead us to respond Holy Spirit of God, lead us to respond to your revelation. God, help this not just to be an academic exercise. Help this not to just be a routine. Give your church the liberty to respond to your word, however it is that you are leading. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.